This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more, or to learn how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Becky Cook in Raleigh, North Carolina. Book the First, Chapter Seven of The Last Days of Pompey by Edward G. Bulwer Lytton. The Gay Life of the Pompeian Lounger, a Miniature Likeness of the Roman Baths. When Glaucus left Ione, he felt as if he trod upon air. In the interview with which he had just been blessed, he had for the first time gathered from her distinctly that his love was not unwelcome to, and would not be unrewarded by her. This hope filled him with a rapture for which earth and heaven seemed too narrow to afford a vent. Unconscious of the sudden enemy he had left behind, and forgetting not only his taunts but his very existence, Glaucus passed through the gay streets, repeating to himself, in the wantonness of joy, the music of the soft air to which Ione had listened with such intentness, and now he entered the street of fortune, with its raised footpath, its houses painted without, and the open doors admitting the view of the glowing frescoes within. Each end of the street was adorned with a triumphal arc, and as Glaucus now came before the temple of fortune, the jutting portico of that beautiful fane, which is supposed to have been built by one of the family of Cicero, perhaps by the orator himself, imparted a dignified and venerable feature to a scene otherwise more brilliant than lofty in its character. That temple was one of the most graceful specimens of Roman architecture. It was raised on a somewhat lofty podium, and between two flights of steps ascending to a platform stood the altar of the goddess. From this platform another flight of broad stairs led to the portico, from which the height of whose fluted columns hung festoons of the richest flowers. On either side the extremities of the temple were placed statues of Grecian workmanship, and at a little distance from the temple rose the triumphal ark crowned with an equestrian statue of Caligula, which was flanked by trophies of bronze. In this space before the temple a lively throng were assembled, some seated on benches and discussing the politics of the empire some conversing on the approaching spectacle of the amphitheatre. One knot of young men were lauding a new beauty, another discussing the merits of the last play. A third group, more stricken in age, were speculating on the chance of the trade with Alexandria, and amidst these were many merchants in the eastern costume, whose loose and peculiar robes, painted in gemmed slippers, and composed in serious countenances, formed a striking contrast to the tuniced forms and animated gestures of the Italians for that impatient and lively people had as now a language distinct from speech a language of signs and motions inexpressibly significant and vivacious their descendants retain it and the learned jorio hath written a most entertaining work upon that species of hieroglyphical gesticulation sauntering through the crowd glaucus soon found himself amidst a group of his merry and dissipated friends ah said celeste it is a lustrum since i saw you and how have you spent the lustrum? What new dishes have you discovered? I have been scientific, returned Celeste, and have made some experiments in the feeding of lampreys. I confess I despair of bringing them to the perfection which our Roman ancestors attained. Miserable man, and why? Because, returned Celeste with a sigh, it is no longer lawful to give them a slave to eat. I am very often tempted to make away with the very fat carpenter, whom I possess, and pop him slyly into the reservoir. He would give the fish a most oleaginous flavor. But slaves are not slaves nowadays, and have no sympathy with their master's interest, or Davis would destroy himself to oblige me. "'What news from Rome?' said Lepidus, as he languidly joined the group. "'The emperor has been giving a splendid supper to the senators,' answered Celeste. 
"'He is a good creature,' quoth Lepidus. "'They say he never sends a man away without granting his request.' "'Perhaps he would let me kill a slave for my reservoir,' returned Celeste eagerly. "'Not unlikely,' said Glaucus. "'For he who grants a favour to one Roman must always do it at the expense of another. "'Be sure that for every smile Titus has caused a hundred eyes have wept.' "'Long live Titus!' cried Pansa, overhearing the emperor's name, as he swept patronizingly through the crowd. "'He has promised my brother a quaestorship, because he had run through his fortune.' "'And wishes now to enrich himself among the people, my Pansa,' said Glaucus. "'Exactly so,' said Pansa. "'That is putting the people to some use,' said Glaucus. "'To be sure,' returned Pansa. "'Well, I must go and look after the rarium. It is a little out of repair.' and followed by a long train of clients, distinguished from the rest of the throng by the togas they wore, for togas, once the sign of freedom in a citizen, were now a badger's servility to a patron, the aedile fidgeted fussily away. "'Poor Panza,' said Lepidus, "'he never has time for pleasure. Thank heaven I am not an aedile.' "'Ah, Glaucus, how are you? Gay as ever?' said Clodius, joining the group. "'Are you come to sacrifice to fortune?' said Celeste. I sacrifice to her every night, returned the gamester. I do not doubt it. No man has made more victims. By Hercules, abiding speech, cried Glaucus, laughing. The dog's letter is never out of your mouth, Celeste, said Clodius angrily. You are always snarling. I may well have the dog's letter in my mouth, since, whenever I play with you, I have the dog's throw in my hand, returned Celeste. Hist, said Glaucus, taking a rose from a flower girl who stood beside the rose is the token of silence, replied Celeste, but I love only to see it at the supper-table. Talking of that, Diomed gives a grand feast next week, said Celeste. Are you invited, Glaucus? Yes, I received an invitation this morning. And I, too, said Celeste, drawing a square piece of papyrus from his girdle. I see that he asks us an hour earlier than usual, and earnest of something sumptuous. Oh, he is rich as Croesus, said Claudius, and his bill of fare is as long as an epic. "'Well, let us to the baths,' said Glaucus. "'This is the time when all the world is there, and Fulvius, whom you admire so much, is going to read us his last ode.' The young men assented readily to the proposal, and they strolled to the baths. Although the public thermae, or baths, were instituted rather for the poorer citizens than the wealthy, for the last had baths in their own houses, yet, to the crowds of all ranks who resorted to them, it was a favorite place for conversation, and for that indolent lounging so dear to a gay and thoughtless people. The baths at Pompey differed, of course, in plan and construction from the vast and complicated thermae of Rome, and, indeed, it seems that in each city of the empire there was always some slight modification of arrangement in the general architecture of the public baths. This mightily puzzles the learned, as if architects and fashion were not capricious before the nineteenth century. Our party entered by the principal porch in the street of Fortune. At the wing of the portico sat the keeper of the baths, with his two boxes before him, one for the money he received, one for the tickets he dispensed. Round the walls of the portico were seats crowded with persons of all ranks, while others, as the regimen of the physicians prescribed, were walking briskly to and fro the portico, stopping every now and then to gaze on the innumerable notices of shows, games, sales, expeditions, which were painted or inscribed upon the walls. 
The general subject of conversation was, however, the spectacle announced in the amphitheatre, and each newcomer was fastened upon by a group eager to know if Pompey had been so fortunate as to produce some monstrous criminal, some happy case of sacrilege or of murder, which would allow the aediles to provide a man for the jaws of the lion. All other more common exhibitions seemed to dull and tame, when compared with the possibility of this fortunate occurrence. "'For my part,' said one jolly-looking man, who was a goldsmith, "'I think the emperor, if he is as good as they say, might have sent us a Jew.' "'Why not take one of the new sect of Nazarenes?' said a philosopher. "'I am not cruel. But an atheist, one who denies Jupiter himself, deserves no mercy.' "'I care not how many gods a man likes to believe in,' said the goldsmith, "'but to deny all gods is something monstrous.' "'Yet I fancy,' said Glaucus, "'that these people are not absolutely atheists. "'I am told that they believe in a god, nay, in a future state.' "'Quite a mistake, my dear Glaucus,' said the philosopher. "'I have conferred with them. "'They laughed in my face when I talked of Pluto and Hades.' "'O oh, ye gods!' exclaimed the goldsmith, in horror. "'Are there any of these wretches in Pompeii?' "'I know there are a few, "'but they meet so privately that it is impossible to discover who they are.' As Glaucus turned away, a sculptor, who was a great enthusiast in his art, looked after him admiringly. "'Ah!' said he, "'if we could get him on the arena, there would be a model for you. What limbs! What a head! He ought to have been a gladiator, a subject worthy of our art. Why don't they give him to the lion?' Meanwhile, Fulvius, the Roman poet, whom his contemporaries declared immortal, and who, but for this history, would never have been heard of in our neglectful age, came eagerly up to Glaucus. "'Oh, my Athenian, my Glaucus, you have come to hear my ode. That is indeed an honour. You, a Greek, to whom the very language of common life is poetry. How I thank you. It is but a trifle, but if I secure your approbation, perhaps I may get an introduction to Titus. Oh, Glaucus, a poet without a patron is an amphora without a label. The wine may be good, but nobody will laud it. And what says Pythagoras? Frankincense to the gods, but praise to the man.' A patron, then, is the poet's priest. He procures him the incense, and it tames him his believers. But all Pompey is your patron, and every portico and altar in your praise. Ah, the poor Pompeians are very civil. They love to honor merit, but they are only the inhabitants of a petty town. Spero Melora. Shall we within? Certainly. We lose time till we hear your poem. At this instant there was a rush of some twenty persons from the baths into the portico, and a slave stationed at the door of a small corridor now admitted the poet, Glaucus, Clodius, and a troop of the bard's other friends into the passage. "'A poor place this, compared with the Roman Thermae,' said Lepidus disdainfully. "'Yet is there some taste in the ceiling,' said Glaucus, who was in the mood to be pleased with everything, pointing to the stars which studded the roof. Lepidus shrugged his shoulders, but was too languid to reply." They now entered a somewhat spacious chamber, which served for the purposes of the apoditarium, that is, a place where the bathers prepared themselves for their luxurious ablutions. The vaulted ceiling was raised from a cornice, glowingly colored with motley and grotesque paintings. The ceiling itself was panelled in white compartments bordered with rich crimson. The unsullied and shining floor was paved with white mosaics, and along the walls were ranged benches for the accommodation of the loiterers. This chamber did not possess the numerous and spacious windows which Vitruvius attributes to his more magnificent frigidarium. The Pompeians, as all the southern Italians, were fond of banishing the light from their sultry skies, and combined in their voluptuous associations the idea of luxury with darkness. 
Two windows of glass alone admitted the soft and shaded ray, and the compartment in which one of these casements was placed was adorned with a large relief of the destruction of the titans. In this apartment, Fulvia seated himself with a magisterial air, and his audience gathering round him encouraged him to commence his recital. The poet did not require much pressing. He drew forth from his vest a roll of papyrus, and after hemming three times, as much to command silence as to clear his voice, he began that wonderful ode, of which, to the great mortification of the author of this history, no single verse can be discovered. By the plaudits he received, it was doubtless worthy of his fame, and Glaucus was the only listener who did not find it excel the best odes of Horace. The poem concluded, those who took only the cold bath began to undress. They suspended the garments on hooks, fastened in the wall, and receiving, according to their condition, either from their own slaves or from those of the thermae, loose robes in exchange, withdrew into that graceful circular building which yet exists to shame the unleaving posterity of the South. The more luxurious departed by another door to the tepidarium, a place which was heated to a voluptuous warmth, partly by a movable fireplace, principally by a suspended pavement, beneath which was conducted the caloric of the laconicum. Here this portion of the intended bathers, after unrobing themselves, remained for some time enjoying the artificial warmth of the luxurious air, and this room, as befitted its important rank in the long process of ablution, was more richly and elaborately decorated than the rest. The arched roof was beautifully carved and painted, the windows above of ground glass admitted but wandering and uncertain rays. Below the massive cornices were rows of figures in massive and bold relief. The walls glowed with crimson. The pavement was skilfully tessellated in white mosaics. Here the habituated bathers, men who bathed seven times a day, would remain in a state of a nervy and speechless lassitude, either before, or mostly, after the water-bath, and many of these victims of the pursuit of health turned their listless eyes on the newcomers, recognizing their friends with a nod, but dreading the fatigue of conversation. From this place the party again diverged, according to their several fancies, some to the sudatorium which answered the purpose of our vapor-baths, and thence to the warm bath itself. Those more accustomed to exercise, incapable of dispensing with so cheap a purchase of fatigue, resorted at once to the calidarium, or water-bath. In order to complete this sketch, and give to the reader an adequate notion of this, the main luxury of the ancients, we will accompany Lepidus, who regularly underwent the whole process, save only the cold bath, which had gone lately out of fashion. Being then gradually warmed in the tepidarium, which has just been described, the delicate steps of the Pompeian elegant were conducted to the sudatorium. Here let the reader depict to himself the gradual process of the vapor-bath, accompanied by the exhalation of spicy perfumes. After our bather had undergone this operation, he was seized by his slaves, who always awaited him at the baths, and the dews of heat were removed by a kind of scraper which, by the way, a modern traveller has gravely declared to be used only to remove the dirt, not one particle of which could ever settle on the polished skin of the practised bather. Thence, somewhat cooled, he passed into the water-bath, over which fresh perfumes were profusely scattered, and, on emerging from the opposite part of the room, a cooling shower played over his head and form. Then, wrapping himself in a light robe, he returned once more to the tepidarium, where he found Glaucus, who had not encountered the sudatorium, and now the main delight and extravagance of the bath commenced. Their slaves anointed the bathers with vials of gold, of alabaster, or of crystal, 
studded with profusest gems, and containing the rarest unguents gathered from all quarters of the world. The number of these smegmata, used by the wealthy, would fill a modern volume, especially if the volume were printed by a fashionable publisher. Americanum, Megalium, Nardum, Omne Quod, Exit and Um, while soft music played in an adjacent chamber, and such as the use of the baths in moderation, refreshed and restored by the grateful ceremony, conversed with all the zest and freshness of rejuvenated life. "'Blessed be he who invented baths,' said Glaucus, stretching himself along one of those bronze seats, then covered with soft cushions, which the visitor to Pompeii sees at this day in that same tepidarium. Whether he were Hercules or Bacchus, he deserves deification.' "'But tell me,' said a corpulent citizen, who was groaning and wheezing under the operation of being rubbed down, "'tell me, O Glaucus, evil chance to thy hands, O slave, why so rough? Tell me, ugh, ugh, are the baths at Rome really so magnificent?' Glaucus turned, and recognized Diomed, though not without some difficulty. So red and so inflamed were the good man's cheeks by the sudatory and the scraping he had so lately undergone. "'I fancy they must be a great deal finer than these, eh?' Suppressing a smile, Glaucus replied, "'Imagine all Pompey converted into baths, and you will then form a notion of the size of the imperial thermae of Rome, but a notion of the size only. Imagine every entertainment for mind and body, enumerate all the gymnastic games our fathers invented, repeat all the books Italy and Greece have produced, suppose places for all these games, admires for all these works, Add to this baths of the vastest size, the most complicated construction, intersperse the whole with gardens, with theatres, with porticos, with schools. Suppose, in one word, a city of the gods, composed but of palaces and public edifices, and you may form some faint idea of the glories of the great baths of Rome. By Hercules, said Diomed, opening his eyes, why it would take a man's whole life to bathe. At Rome it often does so replied Glaucus gravely. There are many who live only at the paths. They appear there at the first hour in which the doors are opened, and remain till that in which the doors are closed. They seem as if they knew nothing of the rest of Rome, as if they despised all other existence. By Pollux! You amaze me! Even those who bathe only thrice a day contrive to consume their lives in this occupation. They take their exercise in the tennis court or the porticos to prepare them for the first bath. They lounge into the theatre to refresh themselves after it. They take their prandium under the trees, and think over their second bath. By the time it is prepared, the prandium is digested. From the second bath they stroll into one of the peristyles to hear some new poet recite, or into the library to sleep over an old one. Then comes the supper, which they still consider but a part of the bath, and then a third time they bathe again as the best place to converse with their friends. Per Hercule, but we have their imitators at Pompeii. Yes, and without their excuse. The magnificent voluptuaries of the Roman baths are happy. They see nothing but the gorgeousness and splendor. They visit not the squalid parts of the city. They know not that there is poverty in the world. All nature smiles for them, and her only frown is the last one which sends them to bathe in Cocytus. Believe me, they are your only true philosophers." While Glaucus was thus conversing, Lepidus, with closed eyes and scarce perceptible breath, was undergoing all the mystic operations, not one of which he ever suffered his attendants to admit. After the perfumes and the unguents, they scattered over him the luxurious patterns which prevented any further accession of heat, and this being rubbed away by the smooth surface of the pumice, he began to endue, 
not the garments he had put off, but those more festive ones termed the synthesis, with which the Romans marked the respect for the coming ceremony of supper, if rather, from its hour, three o'clock in our measurement of time, it might not be more fitly denominated dinner. This done, he at length opened his eyes and gave signs of returning to life. At the same time, too, Sallust betokened by a long yawn the evidence of existence. "'It is supper-time,' said the epicure. "'You, Glaucus, and Lepidus, come and sup with me.' "'Recollect you are all three engaged to my house next week,' cried Diomed, who is mildly proud of the acquaintance of men of fashion. "'Ah, ah, we recollect,' said Sallust. "'The seed of memory, my Diomed, is certainly in the stomach.' Passing now once again into the cooler air, and so into the street, our gallants of the day concluded the ceremony of a Pompeian bath. End of Book the First, Chapter 7 The Last Days of Pompey by Edward G. Bulwer-Lytton Recording by Becky Cook in Raleigh, North Carolina